Um, so tonight, as we look at this passage, we're going to look at three things. First, what is the motivation to pray? What is the motivation for prayer? Second, how does understanding the character of God as Father affect our prayers? And third, what does it mean for us to call God the Father, our Father? I just need to say, um, I'm, I'm helped a lot tonight by a friend of mine, Kevin Twitt, leaning on some of his stuff this evening. So first, what is the motivation for prayer? What is it this parable teaches us to be the motivation for prayer? Um, it's clear Jesus tells this parable about the friend who goes to his friend at midnight. Um, he's doing this to encourage us to pray, but how is this supposed to motivate us? Now, is he telling us that we should be like the persistent neighbor, saying that um, we need to bother God? Like, like, even after he says no, that we need to bother God. This is what he's saying. In verse, if you look in verse 7, um, he goes up and the guy says, do not bother me. Is Jesus saying that we need to be persistent and bother God? Or is he teaching us that like the friend, um, Jesus, God, is he teaching us that like the friend, God needs to be woken up before we can get what we need? Or is he teaching us about our persistence, that the way that we get God to listen to us is that we have to keep on knocking? Um, I want to argue that this is not, Jesus is not saying any of these three things. Um, Though I've heard people say these things from this passage, um, here's what Jesus is saying. And the, the version that we read, which is from the English Standard Version, which is one of the English translations of the Bible, um, what it says is the reason that the guy gets out of bed is because of his friend's impudence, or impudence, that's how you say that word, impudence, um, which is like his audacity or his boldness. And to understand what Jesus is teaching us here, we must understand what this word is that's translated as impudence. Impudence, I can't say that word. It's the impudence, right? Anybody know? We don't use that word. Boldness. Whatever that word means. Okay. So, so reading Bible commentaries, um, you'll learn that there's a big debate about this word. And it's literally the word shamelessness, um, which is to feel or to not feel shame when you're supposed to feel shame. So to not feel shame when you're supposed to feel shame. And this has a negative connotation. This word has a negative connotation everywhere else that it occurs in Greek literature. So Jesus is not encouraging this behavior. And over the centuries, people have struggled to understand what this word, like why Jesus is using this negative word in this parable. I mean, why would Jesus use a negative word to describe prayer? And because of this struggle to make sense of this word, what's happened over time is translators have taken this and moved it into a positive word. So taking this word that means a shamelessness in a negative sense and turning it into boldness in a positive sense. But it didn't have this meaning when Jesus told this parable. And a lot of what I'm getting from here is from a guy named Kenneth Bailey, who has written a lot about ancient years in Eastern culture and the, the culture into which Jesus first told these parables. So to understand this parable, we must see that who is being described as sh- with this shamelessness. Um, and so the grammar of this suggests that the word is describing the, word, the guy in bed rather than the friend who comes at midnight. So what he's saying is that the guy in bed gets up to answer his friend at the door because he wants to avoid a sense of shame. And this would have been very powerful in a Middle Eastern village community. So how do we know that it's the guy in bed being described? Well, because he doesn't just give the friend the three loaves, but he he offers him whatever he needs, right? He says, I will give you, he he will rise and give him whatever he needs, the end of verse 8. And so what he's doing here is he's being careful to avoid shame. And the avoid the shame of not responding to a neighbor in need. And so in Middle Eastern um, communities, there's this very strong tradition about how you deal appropriately with neighbors. 
Now, especially in small villages, you had a visitor who arrived at your village, everyone in the village would feel the responsibility of caring for this visitor. So if you were asked to care for him, you would feel the weight of the village's um, reputation. If you did something wrong, it would bring shame on the whole village. And so this shamelessness here, he wants to avoid the guy who's being, the door's being knocked on, he's being asked for food. He wants to avoid bringing shame to his whole community, to give the friend whatever he needs. All right, so if we read this parable incorrectly, this is what it says to us. Incorrectly, it says this. How should you pray? Well, you need to bother God a lot, and then he'll give you what you need. Because God wants to know how much you love him first. It's about you. Prayer is about you and your spiritual zeal. It's about how enthusiastic you are for Jesus. And that's not what Jesus is saying. So this parable is unusual because it's presenting um, God by presenting us a foil of him. Jesus isn't saying that the man in bed is like God. He's saying that the man in bed is not like God. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying if a guy who doesn't even like his neighbor and is full of excuses for getting up will still get up to give you whatever you need because of his, he doesn't want to give shame to the community, then imagine what it's like to come to a father who loves to give good gifts to his children. Rather than teaching that God is like the guy in bed, this parable contrasts God with the guy in bed, saying that God is not reluctant to answer prayer. And so this is what this is saying about our motivation to pray. It's not about working up some sort of heightened spiritual vigor inside of you. It's saying that the character of God as a good father who delights in blessing his children is the only true motivation for prayer. And the only motivation for prayer that will transform any sort of duty into delight. And this is made clear in verses 9 through 13. Jesus says to seek and to ask and knock. Why? Because God is a good father who wants to, you to find and wants you to ask and wants you to receive. And this is how Jesus teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, this, this short prayer at the top, verses 2 through 4. And it doesn't begin, the Lord's Prayer doesn't begin with us trying to get God's attention or us trying to convince God that he should listen to us. But what does he start with? Look at this. Look at verse 2 with me. He says, Father. He begins with Father. He begins with the relationship. It's personal. He begins with a relationship that's already established. So when figuring out how to pray, when we're figuring out to pray, we often miss the most exciting thing about the Lord's Prayer. And it's that we have access. That through Christ, we have access to God. It's, it's possible to know God personally. And perhaps the reason that we aren't eager to pray so often is that we've forgotten. We've forgotten what it cost Jesus to give us friendship and to give us communion with his Father. Um, so this means that we should pray, when we pray, um, we should pray that the gospel, the good news that Jesus has given his life for ours so that we might be welcomed by his Father, um, that the gospel would take a stronger root in our hearts. Because without it, prayer becomes nearly impossible and then turns right back into a duty. Because true, true prayer is born of a humility and boldness that only comes from the gospel. So it's born from humility. Knowing that because of our sin, we don't deserve to come into God's presence. That the only way we have access to God is through his son who gave himself for us. But then also a boldness. That Jesus died to give us that access. That the reason he left his throne in heaven and he came to us and lived as a human. The reason that he suffered as we do. And he suffered for us was so that he could give us access to his Father. And through his resurrection and through his sending of the Spirit, 
through the power of his spirit, he has given us access to his Father. He has brought us into communion with God. And friends, this is yours through faith in Christ. And this should give you real boldness. That you enter into God's presence. You don't have to first prove yourself or work something up in yourself to come into his presence. But you can come into his presence because you're wanted, because you're invited, because you're summoned there. Um, So I've heard it said that if you want to know what a person believes about God, you should listen to them pray. You should listen to how um, they talk about God in prayer. So a question for you to consider for yourselves is what would people think that you believe in God based on how you pray? If someone were to listen to you pray, whether it be in a group of people or to listen to you pray as you walk into class or listen to you pray as you're sitting in your room, if people were to listen to you pray, what would they think that you believe about God? Um, I heard a story about Alexander the Great uh, that when his daughter was getting married, um, the minister who was doing performing the wedding, who was Alexander the Great's minister, he requested this huge sum of money to perform the wedding. And the other officials in Alexander the Great's court were scandalized by this, that he asked for so much money. And they were wondering, what is Alexander going to do to this minister? Um, but Alexander the Great was pleased. He said this. He said, this man honors me by showing that he believes that I am incredibly wealthy and extremely generous. What would people think you believe about God from the way you would they think that your God is extremely wealthy and extremely generous? And this is why Jesus spends most of his effort teaching us to pray by teaching us, by showing us the character of his Father in heaven. So second, how does understanding the character of God, our Father, how does this affect our prayers? Well, in this last section of the passage, Jesus invites us to think about God as a good Father. Right? He says... Um, for what fathers among you, if your child asks you for a fish, will instead give him a serpent. So in the ocean, um, in the Sea of Galilee, there's these, these fish that look like snakes that can actually crawl out on land and have feet. I mean, it sounds disgusting, doesn't it? But So if you're fishing in the Sea of Galilee, you'd actually could pull out a net, have fish that are, I don't know, bass or trout. I don't know what they have in the Sea of Galilee. Um, but also these like gross snake fishes. And so if your kid asks you for fish, what are you going to give them? Are you going to give them the good fish or the snake fish? Of course you're going to give them the good fish. Um, the same way if uh, your son asks for an egg, your child asks for an egg, we'll give them a scorpion. When a, when a scorpion is, is curled up, it looks like an egg. So like which of you, good father, so Jesus is speaking to me here, which of you who's a dad, if your kid, my son George, who's 10 months old, asks me for an egg, which he can't talk, but maybe he can like motion towards the egg and paw the air, um, would I be like, hey, here's a scorpion? Like, no, that's horrible. No one, I mean, scorpions kill babies. Do you guys know that? I mean, that'd be a horrible thing to do. Um, if I think they do, I don't know. Um, never tested that one out. Sorry, derailed this a little bit there. Okay. Jesus says, if you. Oh, all right. Jesus says, if you who are evil. Know how to give good gifts to your children. Then how much more does your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Um, so what does this mean for us? If, if, if we who are evil, Jesus says that I'm evil because my heart is wicked and I want the wrong things, and, um, which is true about me. I still give good gifts to my children. And God who is good 
promises to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. What does that mean about the way that we should approach God in prayer? I think what Jesus is saying is that we need to trust him. That we need to trust. We need to not only ask God to give us gifts, but actually ask him to be the one who determines what we get. Um, Leo, my 10-year-old's birthday, he's not 10, my 7-year-old's birthday, uh, (laughs) George is 10 months. Um, uh, Leo's 7th birthday was a couple weeks ago, and he wanted a Lego set. And um, he's not at the age yet where he, like, can get on the internet and pick out which Lego set he wants. And so part of the the joy of giving gifts to children is getting to pick out the thing for them. And so it was so great on his birthday for him to open this. It's like a police thing. Um, It's great. Uh, But to, to open this gift with him and, like, that as his dad, I got to decide the good gift to give him. And I'm evil. And Jesus says that your Father in heaven who is good wants to give you good things. So I think this is saying to us that we should let him choose what the good things are that he's going to give us. Now, in a culture where we're told that our preferences and our choices are the most important thing about us, this this strikes our ears. This is hard for us to hear. But if God is who he says he is, then we need to let him choose what he's going to give us. And whatever gift God gives, we don't have to be scared that he's not good because he promises. He's promising here that he will not trick us. God will not trick you. God will not give you something bad when he promises you something good. I mean, mean, some of you might have felt tricked by God. Have you felt tricked by God? Have you prayed for something and then gotten something else instead? So how do we make sense of this? Like, How are we to make sense of, in our experience, when we pray for something that we think is a good thing and instead we're given something that's not a good thing or that we don't think is a good thing? Um, The way that we make sense of this is that um, we trust that God is a good father, that the gift he gives us is actually good, that he's a good father, and he gives us, um, he doesn't give us scorpions and snakes. Charles Spurgeon, who was a 19th century preacher in England, um, he he wrote this. He said, Elijah, who was a, a prophet of the Old Testament, Elijah prayed that he would die, yet when it was time to die, he never did. The story of Elijah is that he was actually taken up before he died. Elijah prayed that he would die, but it was time for him to die. He never did. You should often thank God for not answering many of your prayers. Jesus is teaching here that the Father's character means that we must trust him with what he chooses to give us. He's saying that even if you who are evil know how to give good gifts, imagine how good your Heavenly Father's gifts will be. So we need to interpret what Jesus is saying. is We need to interpret the responses we get to prayer through the character of God as our Father, through Him being a good Father. It's like His character is a pair of glasses, a pair of lenses that we need to put on so that we can read rightly what He is doing. Jesus, in, in this prayer, teaches us to pray, Your kingdom come. And this is a, something He's continually treat, teaching us throughout our whole lives, continually teaching us, is to put on these lenses of God as a good Father as we pray this prayer, Your kingdom come. Because it doesn't come the way that we think it should or it doesn't come in the places that we think it should. And his answers to our prayers are either yes or no or not yet. And whatever answer he gives us, he's teaching us to look to our Father as good and to receive everything he gives as a gift. So why should you pray this way? Um, praying this way will dismantle your anxiety. It will dismantle your anxiety and it will expand your joy. Now how does it do this? I want to read you a quote from Tim Keller, who gets a lot of airtime because he's 
a wonderful thinker and writer and pastor. And this is what he says. If we lose focus on the glory of God and the gospel as the solution to all our problems, then we devolve into a set of grocery list prayers rather, that are made rather desperately. When we are done, we feel more anxious than before. The presence of God is not sensed because God is just being used. He's not being worshipped. Instead, we should always remember that the first thing we need is a new perspective, a new set of glasses, new perspective on our needs and problems. We should always intertwine our petition with repentance over our unbelief and our indifference to God's grace. On the one hand, we must pray into ourselves the thing that we're asking for. We need to pray into ourselves that the thing that we are asking for, whatever the thing that we're asking God for, pray into ourselves that that is not our Savior, it is not our God, it is not our glory. But on the other hand, after we repent, after we turn and change our mind and refine our desire, we should pray into ourselves that God is our Father and he wants to give us good things so we can ask in confidence. Also intertwined with our prayers should be praise and marveling that we are able to approach God and are welcomed. This is gospel-centered prayer rather than anxious petitioning. Now our desires are always idolatrous to some degree. And when we pray without dealing with that first, we find our prayers only make us more anxious. Have you ever felt this where after you pray you're actually more anxious than before? I have. Um, Instead, we should always say in effect, Lord, let me see your glory as I haven't before. Let me be so ravished with your grace that worry and self-pity and anger and indifference melt away. Then when we turn to ask God for admission to grad school or ask God for healing from an illness or whatever it is that we're asking God for, those issues will be put, issues will be put in proper perspective. We will say this. We'll say, Lord, I ask for this because I think it will glorify you. So help me get it or support me without it. If the overall focus of prayer is on God's glory and the gospel, then our individual requests will be made with great peace and confidence. You hear what he's saying? He's saying that when we turn to God with our fingers gripping tight the things that we want, when we're done praying, we're only going to feel more anxious about those things. But when we turn to God and trust him as our good father, then he, f- he frees us to open our hands with the things that we want or we think we need, and then he gives us peace and confidence. So a question for you, what are you gripping too tightly onto? What is too precious to you that you're unwilling to open your hands and trust God with it? What, what is off limits to God? What do you not mention in prayer? Uh, what is off limits to God? Is it your future plans? Maybe it's your career or it's grad school. Maybe it's that particular relationship. But what if Jesus is right? What if his father really is that good? And what if you could really trust him with everything, even that thing that's off limits? What if seeking first his kingdom and his glory would make you less anxious and actually give you the peace and the confidence that you long for as you pursue your future? This is what Jesus is saying is possible in him and through him. So finally, I just want to look at what it means for us to call on God the Father as our Father. So in the Old Testament, um, Father is used um, in two ways. And the first way is in Exodus chapter 4, which is the context of um, God delivering his people out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt. Um, God refers to himself as Father, the Father of Israel. And then second, in 2 Samuel 7, when God is making promises to Israel, he's promised to give them a king who will reign on uh, the throne of, of God's kingdom forever. He says that this king will be my son we see fully in Jesus Christ. This king will be my son and I will be his father. 
God roots fatherhood in how he has acted in history, um, rescuing his people from slavery and establishing a kingdom for them. So when we call God our father in prayer, this isn't just trying to get us some like warm fuzzies and like uh, snuggle with dad. What we're doing is we are expressing intimacy. These are words that Jesus has given us to express our intimacy with the infinitely holy God who has made us in his image, who has rescued Israel from slavery, and who has raised Jesus Christ from the dead. So calling God the Father, our Father, is this expression of this sort of holy boldness. A holy boldness. I want to read you um, from a guy named N.T. Wright, who's a, a bishop in the Church of England. And he writes this about the Lord's Prayer. He says, In many ancient liturgies, when the Lord's Prayer is said, it is introduced with solemn words that recognize that to say the prayer properly and to mean it from the heart would imply that the Holy Spirit has completed the good work that God has begun in us. So saying, if we're to pray the Lord's Prayer honestly, like we're really honest, what we're saying is that God has actually completed salvation, that it is done in us. And since we know that that's not true, the minister introduces the prayer with words like this. He says something like, as our Savior has commanded and taught us to say, we are bold to say. In other words, we don't have the right to say this prayer, but it's part of this holy boldness. This almost, he's British, he says this, it's almost cheeky celebration of the sheer grace and goodness of the living God. That we can actually say these words as though we really meant them through and through. Calling God the Father our Father means that he wants us to ask him for things, good things, um, even for the Holy Spirit. So what does this mean at the end of this passage where Jesus says, um, you know, you're evil, dad, you give good gifts to your kids anyways. I'm a good God, and our Father in heaven is a good God, and he gives you the Holy Spirit when you ask for it. Um, the Holy Spirit is the gift of God's personal presence with you. So what Jesus is saying is the greatest good that we were all designed for and that our hearts long for and that we are restless for, um, that we will not find our rest until we rest in God, is given to us in the Holy Spirit. So when Jesus is saying that you can ask me for the Holy Spirit, you can ask my Father for the Holy Spirit, he's saying that through me, through my shed blood for you on the cross, through the work I've done on your behalf, you can have personal, dynamic, intimate love relationship with your creator that his holy spirit will come to you and reside in you second calling god the father our father means that we must remember what it means for jesus to call god his father Um, the book of hebrews tells us in a couple of places that the more that jesus suffered the more he learned about what it meant to call god his father the more he suffered the more he learned what it meant to call god his father And y'all, the same is true for us. The more that you suffer as a Christian, the more that you suffer in your union with Christ, the more you will know God as a good father. And obeying Jesus here and calling God our father means that we are saying, this is what we're saying when we pray the Lord's Prayer. I want to be like my big brother Jesus. I want to be apprenticed to him. I want to be a son like Jesus. I want to be an apprentice son or daughter to God. Um, I want to read you from N.T. Wright again. It's from the same book. He says this. He says, saying our Father isn't just the holy boldness, this sheer cheek of walking into the presence of the living and almighty God and saying, hi, Dad. It is the boldness, the sheer total risk of saying quietly, please, may I too be considered an apprentice son? 
It means signing on for the kingdom of God. When we call God Father, we are called to step out as apprentice children into the world of pain and darkness. We will find that darkness is all around us. It will terrify us, precisely, precisely because it will remind us of the darkness inside ourselves. The temptation then is to switch off the news, to shut out the pain of the world, to create a painless little world for ourselves. And a good deal of our contemporary culture is designed to do just that. No wonder people find it hard to pray. But if we take the risk of calling God Father, then we are called to be the people through whom the pain of the world is, is held and the healing light of the love of God. And then we discover that we want to pray and we need to pray this prayer. The end of John's Gospel, Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. So this is a prayer that we pray as we go out with Jesus to be part of his healing of the world. So what does it mean to call God the Father, our Father? Um, it is a responsibility, it is a privilege, and it's a joy. Let's pray. Um, Jesus, we thank you that you speak to us in parables, and we thank, you that, um, we thank you that your disciples asked you how to pray so that we might have this, um, this wisdom, that you don't trot out uh, technique for us, you don't give us motions of how to do it, but you show us the character of your Father, and where we pray that we would see his goodness more and more, that we would be compelled by his great love for us and sending you for us. Um, Lord, we thank you that you give the Spirit to those who ask. Um, Spirit, would you come? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you all stand, we're going to sing one more song. <laughs>